If you have your Bibles this morning, if you'll open to the book of Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4. And we've spent the last several weeks uh, in the book of Acts, the middle part of the book of Acts, we've, we've been tracing through uh, the Apostle Paul's missionary journeys, him taking the gospel to places where it had never been preached, proclaiming to G- Jesus to those who had never heard. Amazing things happening as, as people were set free by the gospel of grace, that we're saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone, no additional things required. And as we walked through those passages, we came last week to Acts chapter 21, and we saw the the Apostle Paul uh, entering back into the city of Jerusalem, a place that he had not been for nearly a decade as he had been ministering in these various areas, taking the gospel to outlying areas, fulfilling the Great Commission to, to preach the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth, which he did as far as they knew at that time in history. In Acts chapter 21, he entered back into Jerusalem against the advice of many of his friends and comrades in the ministry. They said, bad things are going to go down in Jerusalem. You shouldn't go there. But Paul had a conviction, a calling on his life to go back to Jerusalem and to continue his work there. And at the end of Acts chapter 21, we find Paul in prison. Imprisoned for his faith, much like his own Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, he was imprisoned for having done absolutely nothing wrong. There was no true crimes that he had committed. There was no rightful charges against him. And yet he finds himself nonetheless sitting in a jail cell. And for the remainder of his days, for the rest of his life, Paul would spend the majority of his time in prison. And some might look at Paul's life and say, well, perhaps if he had listened to his buddies and not gone to Jerusalem, that wouldn't have happened. And yet that was the calling of God in his life. And God turned the Apostle Paul's life to a different type of ministry as he began to write for the Lord, as he began inspired by the Holy Spirit to record the very kinds of scriptures we're going to look at today. Ephesians is what we call one of Paul's prison epistles. It's a letter that Paul wrote while he was in prison. There are several of these. The book of Ephesians is a powerful reminder that regardless of your circumstances, even if you are in a jail cell, you still have the opportunity to do a great work for God. The Apostle Paul never saw prison as a defeat. He saw it as a launching pad for a greater victory. Man, if we could get a hold of that kind of an attitude. If we get a hold of that kind of an attitude today, we would be the same kind of world-changing Christians as Paul was. As we look at Ephesians 4 today, the title of today's message is Bodybuilding. We've been talking about the church, building up the church, and how the Apostle Paul sought to found the church firmly in the Word of God and through prayer and a faithful ministry, and how the church grows as a result of that. And we're going to talk today about how the church grows and why it must grow. It's a necessary part. Here's the truth for today. The church is the body of Christ, and it was meant for growth. Now, that may not sound like a controversial statement, but here's the issue that we have in a lot of our churches today. We have created what I would call a two-tiered Christianity. We've created a two-tiered Christianity in which following Christ looks like one of two very different things. In one tier, we have those that we would refer to or that I've referred to as the super-Christians who have the giant C on their chest and the cape and they run around and they are growing and going for the Lord. They love the Word of God and are diving into the Word of God. They're growing in their faith. They are witnessing in every opportunity those who have a living Faith, we see as one tier. And then on the other tier, on the other hand, we see what has been referred to today as nominal Christians. And here's the problem. There is absolutely no category in the scriptures for what we have created when we talk about nominal Christians. When we talk about those who profess a faith in Christ, but to look at their life, they look absolutely no different 
from anyone else out in the world. They may come to church every once in a while on Sunday morning. Uh, they may own a Bible but rarely read it. They may talk about the power of prayer but rarely do it. It's not a living faith. It's just a, I claim Jesus, I got my ticket to heaven punched, and now I live however I want to. There's been no real transformation or change, but we refer to them as nominal Christians. We've created a two-tier Christianity that the Bible knows nothing about. There is no such thing as a nominal Christian in Scripture. There is no two-tier Christianity. There is only one kind of follower of Jesus that Paul's going to describe this morning. That doesn't mean that we don't find ourselves at different levels in our maturity or in our growth in Christ. But what you never see, what you never see in Scripture, you don't see one pocket of Christians who are growing like crazy in love with Jesus and another pocket of Christians who just aren't. But you do see that in our churches today, and it's a huge issue because the church was meant for growth. I want to give you a little bit of an illustration through this video I want to show you. Uh, it's funny, if nothing else, you'll get a good laugh out of it. But also, I want to put in your picture, a, mind, a, a mental picture this morning in your mind of what happens when growth doesn't take place. Okay, so let's check this out. Good morning. Good morning, Madison. Good morning, Johanna. Good morning, Good morning. Johnny. People are always asking me why. Why do the same thing every year? Why not move on? And I say, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Johnny. Present. I'm comfortable. I know the routine. United States of America. And to the Republic. I don't want to brag, but... I'm pretty popular around here. I do really well in sports. Well, I'm just very successful here. Why would I go and mess that up by graduating? I mean, in the first grade, I may not know all the answers. The hours are longer. I hear they don't even have nap time. I mean, I just don't see the upside. Then first grade leads to second grade, second to third. Then you're in high school reading boring books with no pictures. Three, four, five. But he was still hungry. Next thing you know, people expect you to get a job and give up summer vacation. <laughs> no, sir. I think I found my niche. Thank you very much. Home sweet kindergarten. Besides, I mean, what if I failed first grade? How humiliating would that be? No, just don't think I could handle that kind of embarrassment. That was not a good choice. I'm very disappointed. All right, with that picture in our minds, if you're able to stand, would you do so in honor of God's Word this morning as we read? Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Remember, Paul writes this from a prison cell. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all things that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves 
and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You can be seated. Father, as we explore these scriptures today, God, I pray you give us understanding, give us, give us wisdom, God. Help us to run away from this two-tiered Christianity that we have created that is not found in your word. May we hear this word, God, that all of us were meant for growth in Christ. To be found in Christ, to come alive in Christ means to grow in Christ. And to exercise the gifts that Christ has given. And to accomplish the goals that have been set before us in these scriptures. Lord, help us to see what your word is saying and not just to be hearers of your word, God. It's so easy for us to hear and to walk away unchanged. Lord, may we be changed today as your Spirit teaches us. Let me pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we talk about bodybuilding today. I want to give you a little bit of an illustration. Um, I have absolutely no experience with bodybuilding uh, this is, I know you're shocked by that. Uh, you're just so shocked by that. But there is um, a, a sort of bodybuilding that I think is very, very interesting. Um, you'll see these guys every once in a while. The few times that I've ever been to a gym, I've seen some of this. But there's all kinds of pictures on the internet that you'll see of these guys um, who kind of look like, uh, I love the 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 fruit pears, I love pears, and they look like an upside-down pear, okay? I mean, they are like bulked up. They have been working the biceps and the triceps and whatever other muscles are up in this area. They have been working those muscles, but then they've got legs skinnier than mine, okay? I mean, they are bulked up up top, but then they got these chicken legs down below, and, and there's like this strange disconnect uh, because you're looking at them and from the waist up you're going, man, that dude is buff. And then if you just saw him from the waist down, you're going, dude, you need to work your legs a little bit. The, the, the disconnect between the upper and the lower, I think, is a good representation of how we often see the body of Christ functioning. That there are parts of the body that are working, that are worked out, that are, that are, that are buff, so to speak, but then there are other parts that are not so much. And what Paul is teaching here and in, in teaching us about the body of Christ is that we were all, all the parts are meant for growth. Each of us as a part of that body has been rescued from sin and death and the grave, but not rescued just to find a place in heaven one day, but rescued that we might grow in Christ. Growth is not a possibility, it's a necessity. And that's what we're going to see here in Ephesians Chapter 4. So let's jump in there. In verses 1 through 6, we see the grounds for our growth. What's the basis for the kind of growth that Paul is talking about here in the Scripture? He's laid out in the first three chapters of Ephesians, and he's been talking about what the church is supposed to be. He's been laying out his doctrine of the church, his teaching about what the church is supposed to be. And then starting here in Ephesians 4.1 through the end of chapter 6, he talks about, okay, now that we've talked about what the church must be, now I want to share with you what the church must do as a result. The first three chapters are, are about the doctrine of the church, what we believe about the church. The last three chapters are about the duty of the church, the way the church behaves, the way it functions, what it's meant to do. And it teaches us this important principle of the Christian life. This is so necessary. I hope you understand this. That every one of us, this is true for every person in this room, even if you don't believe in the God of the Bible, or His Son, Jesus Christ, this is true for you. You will live according to what you actually believe. Just take that in for a moment. Basic principle of the Christian life, of life in general, as God created, is this. 
You will live according to what you actually believe. Notice I didn't say what you profess to believe. There's a whole lot of folks that profess to believe one thing and live completely differently. We call that hypocrisy. In fact, the church today has been accused of hypocrisy from one end to the other because so often uh, our profession doesn't match our practice. Because we created this two-tiered Christianity where some are growing in Christ and others not so much. But we, we find here the grounds for our growth, what our growth is based upon. The first part is this. Look at verses 1 through 3. Our growth is, first of all, based in a Christ-like demeanor. Ephesians 4 is connected with Philippians 2, which talks about having the attitude of Christ, the mind of Christ, thinking like Christ thinks, believing like Christ believes, so that we might act like Christ acts. Again, our living will flow out of our believing. Every person in this room, you live the way you do because you believe certain things. It's just true. Not because, you, not because of what you ought to believe. Like, for instance, I know that I probably ought to take up bodybuilding and get healthy and, and exercise more often than I do. Why do I not do that? Because I don't really believe that. If you think about your life, you'll realize that that's true of you as well. There are things that you know you ought to do, but that doesn't motivate you to, to what you actually do. It's what you really believe that determines how... You live. And part of that is Christ-like demeanor. Let's talk about it for a few minutes. Verses 1 through 3, he's laying out a series of Christian virtues. He starts there. He says, I want you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. That word worthy there, behind it, there's this Greek word axios, from which we get the English word axiom. And it literally means a balancing of the scales. You can picture those scales of justice being, being balanced. And, in, and the balance that Paul is going for here, the, the worthy walk that Paul is going for here, is a balance between our profession and our practice, between our doctrine and our duty, between what we say we believe and how we actually live. He's saying those two things ought to be balanced out in your life. That's the worthy walk that he's describing. What does it look like? This demeanor, he says, here's what it looks like. With all humility. It's been said that humility is the highest of all Christian virtues. In fact, for, for the Greeks who, who, who occupied the city of Ephesus to whom this letter was written, humility was no virtue at all. In fact, the Greeks despised humility. For them, pride was the greatest virtue. For the Greeks, they taught that a prideful man, a man who exalts himself, who makes a name for himself, who is known and well-known, that that's the kind of man you want to be. You want to get your 15 minutes of fame and stretch him out for a lifetime. That's the ultimate goal. Make a name for yourself. That was the Greek goal. Sounds a whole lot like our culture today, doesn't it? Isn't that so much of what our culture chases after? Make a name for yourself. You deserve your 15 minutes of fame. Go after everything that you can to fill up your bank account, to make your business, leave your mark. It's a very pride-centered mentality. And then Jesus steps in and says, no, the truth is found in humility. That I don't try to make a name for myself, I'm trying to make a name for Christ. I'm not considering just my own interests, I'm considering the interests of others. Christ-like demeanor and launching out of that basic element of humility, he says, and also not just humility, but gentleness. Again, the Greeks despised it. Patience, the Greeks despised it. Bearing with one another in love. Here's where it gets tricky. I told our staff this week, I said, you know, I don't really have a really difficult time bearing with other people. It's those last two words, that in love part. That gets hard. And they informed me, rightly so, that what I was talking about was just putting up with people. Okay, there's a big difference, isn't there? There's a putting up with people, and then there is a bearing with one another in love. So that, that believer that gets on your last nerve becomes God's way of sanctifying you in truth and in practice. Bearing with one another in love. And then he says in verse 3, And eager, desiring, making every effort, your translation may say, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Notice what he doesn't say. 
He doesn't say eager to manufacture the unity of the Spirit. That's what we see in a lot of our churches today. There is this, there's this understanding, I think, that unity is a good thing in the church. That we don't want divisions in the church, and so we want to go after unity in our churches. But what we see a lot of churches doing today is casting aside the truth of God's Word in order to create what they believe is a greater sense of unity. They are manufacturing a false unity in order to somehow make the gospel more palatable to those who don't like some of the things that Jesus said, who don't want to hear that certain things are sins. A false unity, a manufactured unity. But no, he says, not a manufactured unity, but you are to maintain the unity of what? The unity of the Spirit. Which reminds us that the unity that we have, the real unity that Christ is calling us to, is a gift of God, not to be manufactured, but to be maintained. To be stewarded well, as we'll talk about before we finish today. In the bond of peace. So this is the demeanor. Humble, gentle, patient, forbearing, unified. Christ-like demeanor. Secondly, though, the second basis for our unity is Christ-centered doctrine. The word doctrine has fallen on hard times in our churches today. And there would be many who would say, we just need to get rid of doctrine altogether because doctrine is divisive. We need to understand this morning, there is a very real place where doctrine is necessarily divisive. But we need not divide over unnecessary things. There are certain dividing lines we must maintain. For instance, Paul gives here these seven ones. There's one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. Those are seven statements that characterize the truth of the Christian message. You want to sum up what Christianity is all about, you can sum it up right there. We believe in these seven things, the great summary of what we believe. Let's go to the last one, one God. Some people say, well, doctrine is divisive, we need to do away with it. When we say there is one God, we automatically alienate a third of the living population of the world today who would consider themselves to be animists, Buddhists, anybody that believes there's more than one God. When we say there is one God, we automatically alienate about a third of the world who says, no, I believe in multiple gods. So yes, doctrine is divisive, but necessarily so. Secondly, we say there's one God, and we believe that He is the God of the Bible. We have now alienated another third of the world who believes in one God, but believes that that God is Allah or any other number of names that we might use. And we're saying, no, we believe in one God, and He is the God of the Bible. The God whose Son is Jesus Christ who came to die on the cross for our sins. We have now alienated two-thirds of the world or more, depending on how you view this thing. So we would say, yes, doctrine is divisive, but it's necessarily so because what we're saying is, this is truth and this is not. We're living in this crazy culture that somehow believes you can hold two opposing truths at the same time and that's no problem. So they're saying to the church this, okay, so you want to believe that Jesus is the way of salvation. That's all fine and good. But don't go telling the Muslims in our culture that Allah is not. Because always go to heaven. It's this picture of the mountaintop. God's at the top and we're all taking our own roads and we're all going to get there eventually. That's not what the Bible says, folks. So doctrine is, is necessarily divisive. But what Paul is saying is it also, in its truest form, is what creates the unity of Christ's church. This is what creates the unity because we believe these things. Let's walk through them together. He says there is one body. That's a reference to the church in the context of these scriptures he's talking about. He's using this picture of the church as, as a body. And he's saying there's one body. And some would look at the church today and say, what are you talking about? Y'all got your Methodist churches and your Presbyterian churches and your, and your uh, going on Episcopal, blah, blah, blah. We got all these different churches that are saying, what are you talking about? One body. All we see is a bunch of divisions in the church. Now he's... Paul is talking here about not denominational differences. He's, he's saying, as a whole, there is one church. You can call it the universal church, the invisible church, whatever you want. What we're talking about here is 
All believers, everyone who has been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ for all the ages, that is one church. And we may maybe manifest it in a variety of ways. Some may put Baptist on the sign. Some may put Methodist. We may have different ways of doing different things. But everyone who has been rescued by Jesus Christ and his sacrifice at the cross is a part of this one church. This is our unity. Now it's also at the same time necessarily divisive because everyone who is not a part of this body is not a part of this picture. But this is a part of our, of our unity. One body. Secondly, there's one spirit. How did we become one body? Because the Holy Spirit that rescued us from sin and death and became the seal of our salvation has brought us together in the church. Notice what was the unity he talked about in verse 3. It's the unity of the Spirit. And necessarily so. There is nothing that unites us more as the people of God than the fact that we have all been sealed by the Holy Spirit. We have all been given the gift of the Holy Spirit so that that which unites us is greater than anything that might divide us. One Spirit. One body, one Spirit. Just as you were called to one hope. What's that one hope? It's the hope of resurrection life. It's the hope of life eternal. That we're looking forward to the same goal. The finish line is the same for us. We're not looking forward to reincarnation. We're not looking forward to just living out our days the best we can because the grave is the end. No, we're looking forward to life beyond the grave. that has been promised to us in the gospel. That's the hope. So we're all looking toward that one hope. One Lord at the very center of this. That's why I said this is Christ-centered doctrine. That the, the center is one Lord. Now, within the church today, we don't think much about that. But to the largely Greek audience that Paul is writing to here, that was a scandalous statement. Because they believed in many lords. For the slaves within the Roman Empire, every one of them would call their master Lord. And anyone who was above you in the culture, you would often refer to as Lord, whether he be the governor, your boss, whatever he might be. If he was above you in the culture, they would often refer to them as the Kyrios, the Lord. There were many lords within Greek culture, and then the Christians came along and said, but there's only one Lord. And they were giving their lives, staking their lives on the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord and they would not bow down to Caesar and they would not bow down to their slave masters. They would not bow down to those over them. They would not profess the lordship of anyone on this earth. They were saying Jesus Christ is Lord. That was the profession of faith that both drew the dividing line and was the means and basis for their unity. One Lord, one faith, saving faith. What we're saying is salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There is one faith that we share, a saving faith. There are many other faiths out there. We're drawing a dividing line, saying there's one way of salvation, and our world says, well, that's very close-minded. You're telling me that Jesus is the only way of salvation, that if I don't believe in Him, if I don't trust in Him, I'm going to spend an eternity separated from Him in hell. That sounds very close-minded. And on one level, it is very close-minded. And yet, here's the, here's the catch. It's open. That way is open to everyone who will come that way. We are not saying Jesus is the only way of salvation and if you're not an American, you can't come through Jesus. We're not saying Jesus is the only way of salvation. And if your skin is not a certain hue, you can't come through Jesus. Jesus is the only way of salvation. And if you don't make a certain amount of money or you haven't reached this educational level or on and on and on. No, we're not saying any of those things. We're saying Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation, but he is a way that is open to all people. That's why we see the diversity in the body of Christ. Because that which unites us in Christ is greater than that which divides us. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Again, folks will look at this and say, what are you talking about? You got, these, you got your Methodists that are sprinkling over here. You got others that are pouring water. You got these that are dunking in a cattle trough or whatever this thing is. You got some that are going out in the river. You got, there's all kinds of different baptisms that we see. He's not talking about mode of baptism here. 
He's talking about the meaning behind baptism. Baptism is the doorway of entry into the church. It's a symbolic act where the one being baptized is saying, I am identifying with Christ. I am being immersed in Christ. He has filled me and renewed me and saved me. And I'm identifying with His death and burial and resurrection. That's why we believe. That's why we talk about believer's baptism. That's why we don't practice infant baptism. We are drawing a line there about baptism based upon what the Scriptures have taught. And we see this one baptism is what unites us as the church. This is the doorway. And then one God and Father who is overall, through all, you know, it speaks there, overall speaks of His transcendency. That He is far above us. That He is far more powerful than any of us can possibly imagine. In the book of Job it says, the universe... The created universe is like the hem of His garment. Look at the hem of your shirt for a moment and understand. That's saying the universe, everything that we look at, billions and billions of light years away, stars, and we look at the vastness of the universe, the Bible says that's just the hem of His garment. That's how great He is. He is over all, but He is also, He is also through all and in all. His powers that work through all and as Paul reminded the, the, the folks at Athens, he says he's not far from each one of us, the eminence of God. That he has chosen to indwell his people, to live within his people, that you can have a relationship. And by the way, we're talking about a real relationship here. We're not talking about just some weird thing that Christians talk about. Again, no two-tiered Christianity where some people have a living relationship with God and others not so much. We're talking about you were created and designed to have a relationship with the very God who spoke and said, let there be light, and there was light. Who divided the seas and the lands, who put the stars in the sky and called each of them by name. You were created to have a living, vital relationship with this God. This is what unites us. It seems like foolishness and craziness to the world, and yet... It is the faith that we are staking our lives on. The basis for our, our growth is Christ-centered doctrine. That's why Paul said to Titus, as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. That word sound there means healthy. It means hygienic. It's this picture that, you know, you, you could raise your kid on eating Oreos 24-7. Not a good idea. Okay, I got a little three-year-old that loves Oreos, but he ain't getting Oreos for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. He's going to have to eat some chicken. He's going to have to eat some vegetables. He's going to have to eat some things that are going to help him to do what? To grow up healthy. Every parent knows this. And the parent above all parents, God our Father is saying to us, this is what I want for you. I want you to grow up healthy. And a, an essential part of that is right understanding of who He is and who you are in relationship to Him. That's what doctrine is. That's a, it's a fancy word for truth, for biblical truth that helps us to grow up. Secondly, this morning, verses 7 through 12, let's talk about the gifts for our growth. The gifts for our growth. He says, But grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, and he quotes from Psalm 68, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. This was a victory psalm. David comes back from victory over his enemies. He writes this psalm, this picture of a victory parade where he's sharing the spoils of war with his people. And that's what he's using here. Paul uses this psalm to remind us that Christ has won the victory. That's what the, Christ, that's what the cross was about. The cross was not about defeat. It was about, the de it was about the defeat of sin and death. It was not about the defeat of the Son of God. He proved it by rising from the dead. And when He did that, He rescued a people for Himself, but He did not leave them to their own desires and purposes. He gifted them for His. Let's talk about some of those gifts. First of all, He speaks of a universal gifting of all Christians. Notice I said all Christians. Every person who has been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, who has placed their faith in Christ as Savior and Lord, has been given a gift that holds with it a purpose. I, I love this quote from Warren Wearsby. I want to share it with you. 
He says, so a spiritual gift is a God-given ability to serve God and other Christians in such a way that Christ is glorified and believers are edified. Think built up, grown as a result. Gifts are not toys to play with. They are tools to build with. And if they are not used in love, they become weapons to fight with. And some of you have seen this. Some of you have seen the improper use of gifts. I think there is oftentimes an improper use of those spiritual gifts, but there's also at times a hiding of those gifts. It's as if the gift was given and we take it and shove it away in the closet. They were meant to be used and for the purpose of what? Look what he says. The grace was given to us according to the measure of Christ's gift. He gave these gifts, as we'll see, verse 12, for the building up of the body of Christ. Growth is not optional. It's intended and purposeful. Let me show you one more thing before we go on. Sometimes like the church at Corinth, in 1 Corinthians this was a huge issue, sometimes like the church at Corinth, we look at the gifts of others and we say, well, if I was gifted like that, I'd surely use my gift. If I was gifted like so-and-so, I would surely use my gift, but my gift just seems so small in comparison. And we start comparing gifts. I want you to see what he says here. But grace was given to, to each of us, to all of us. Everyone has been given a gift. And he says, given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Let me explain, let me explain according to for you. Let's say that tomorrow uh, I happen to win a million dollars. Now, it's not going to happen because I don't play the lottery and don't do any of those weird sweet sex things. But let's just say for a moment tomorrow, I, I happen to win a million dollars. And so I come to Sarah and I say, Sarah, I have just won this amazing gift. And I want to give you out of this gift. I want to give you a gift out of this gift. And I give her 10 bucks. Sarah, what's your response? <laughs> one more, yeah. It's kind of the, the tongue-in-cheek thank you. Thank you, I guess. Because she understands very clearly that while $10 is a gift in relation to the wealth of the giver, it's not much. Okay? That's not what this is. I think for some in this room, you have been walking with Christ. You have known the power of Christ's resurrection in your life. But you have looked at your own giftedness like a $10 bill that I just gave Sarah. Well, God, that ain't much. Look what the scriptures say here. But he gave to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So what's the picture? If giving out of the gift is giving Sarah $10, what if instead, having won a million dollars tomorrow, I now come to Sarah and say, Sarah, I've won an amazing gift, and I feel led to give you a part of that gift, and I want to give you $100,000. Now what does Sarah say? And no more tongue-in-cheek thank you, is it? It's woohoo! Time to go shopping, people. Okay, you see the difference though, right? The difference is that giving according to the measure of the gift, that which is given matches up in power and relation to that which is possessed by the giver. To give her ten bucks out of a million is a gift, but it's not much of a gift. To give her a hundred thousand out of a million, now you're beginning to get the picture, and the picture here is even greater. It's saying that the gift that Christ won when he rose from the dead and defeated sin and hell and the grave, that he has now given gifts that are meant to be used for building up his body, and there are no ten dollar gifts. Did you hear me? There are no ten dollar gifts. Every believer has been given a gift that's meant to be used for the building up of the body of Christ. Think about the body for a minute. And, and one pastor said, there seem to be a whole lot of appendixes in the body of Christ these days. We don't really know what they're there for or that they have any real function. That's not what Paul's saying. He's saying each of us has been given a gift that's meant to be used for building up the body of Christ. 
We'll come back to that. But he talks about these the universal gifts. And then he also talks about in verses 11 and 12 some unique gifts that are given to Christian leaders. Verses 11 and 12, he says, And it was he who gave. Who was the he? Jesus. Good Sunday school answer. Good job. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Now, I'm going to put those last two together uh, in, in the Greek. The, the best way to understand this is shepherd teachers or pastor teachers. And we'll come back to that in just a moment. The first two of those are what I would call foundational gifts. The apostles and the prophets. Ephesians 2, he had, already, he had already spoken to them and said, Christ is building his church on the foundation that the apostles and the prophets have laid. Apostles like Paul who went out and preached the gospel in places that had never been preached before, who, who planted churches in places they had never, never had a church before, who were sharing Jesus with people that had never heard about Jesus before. This was a foundational gift of the apostles, those who were sent out. Sent out by Jesus himself. One of the prerequisites of the apostles we find in Acts chapter 2 was they had to have been eyewitnesses of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Now there were a couple that were added to that, James and Paul being two, but primarily it was the twelve that lived with Jesus those three years and were trained up by him for a ministry that would change the world forever. I call them foundational gifts. Because both of these gifts are gifts that are no longer necessary today. Some would see the gift of the apostle being passed down. For instance, in the Catholic Church, they believe that the Pope is, as, is the line of popes is the passing down of the gift of the apostle. We don't believe that. We believe that these gifts have ceased because they're no longer necessary. Let me give you an illustration. Um, when our kids were little, one of their grandparents gave them a tricycle. Okay, little, little tricycle, red handlebars, little streamers hanging off the side. And, and each one of them growing up has ridden that little tricycle. Right now, our three-year-old, he's almost to the end of the tricycle phase. But he still rides the little, tri the little tricycle. It served its purpose when they were at a certain age. But now, if Eliza tries to ride the tricycle, her, hand, her knees hit the handlebars, and it's not a real comfortable experience. The gift of the tricycle that was wonderful at one age is no longer needed because something better has come along, the bicycle. And those of you that have ever ridden know it's a whole lot better when you get to the bicycle, though we're still wrestling on actually learning to ride that thing. But we're getting there. And that's kind of how these foundational gifts work. The apostles and the prophets who God used in those early days of the church, during those early, that first century time, to begin doing and building the work of the church. When those men died off in the first century, the last of them being the apostle John who wrote the book of Revelation, when those men died off, those gifts were no longer necessary. They were passed on to others. They were no longer necessary for this reason. Something better had come. By the end of the first century, the canon was complete. The scriptures were done because God used the apostles and the prophets to write the remainder of the scriptures, what we know as the New Testament. And so we no longer need the tricycle of the apostles and prophets. Now we've got the bicycle. Now we've got something better. You hold in your hands today the foundational work of men. We stand on the shoulders of giants. But their work has been passed on to these others. I call these others the formational gifts. So we no longer have apostles and prophets as, as in terms of an office in the church today. But we do have evangelists and again, pastor teachers. The best translation of, of the Greek here would be a, a combination office. Two words used for the same office, a combo office, pastor teachers. Evangelists took on the work of the apostles. This work of starting a new work in new places. It's like Stephen Head that we've sent out as a church planner. I believe he's a good example of those who are beginning new works in, in new places. That's the work of an evangelist or who are going around and sharing the gospel in places that it's not been named. We could probably include missionaries under this kind of an umbrella of, of the evangelists. Those that are working primarily with the church but outside the church. And then you've got the pastor teachers who are also referred to as elders and overseers in the New Testament. This office that is wrapped up in exactly what it sounds like. Preaching, teaching, and leading God's people. Kent Hughes talks about them and says this. So these pastor teachers, they must open wide the foundational teaching of the Old and New Testaments if there's to be true church growth. That's the goal, right? Let's keep that goal in front of our mind. 
And those who receive this teaching must sit back and do nothing, right? No, must listen, take notes, and put it to work. James says, don't just be hearers of the word, become doers of the word. And what is the purpose of these? Look at verse 12. He gave these apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers, he gave them for what purpose? To do the work of the ministry, right? Look at your scriptures. What does it say? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. When you hear that word saints, don't think two-tiered Christianity. We got our saints up here and we got our nominal Christians down here. No. The word saints there refers to every person who's been rescued by Christ's sacrifice to the cross. When he said, be holy as I am holy, it was a calling to sainthood. Saints are not top tier Christians who wear the big C's and wear the capes on their back. That's not the picture here. If you are in Christ today, you are called a saint and you are called to something more than just coming to sit in the pews. You're called to active faith. And so he gives these gifts to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ might be built up. And so First Peter, he says, So I exhort the elders among you, again, think pastors, teachers. There were multiple ones of these serving in every local church. Their purpose was not to do all the ministry, but to equip God's people to do the work of the ministry. It was a multiplication type of leadership process here. I exhort you, he says, I urge you, I'm pleading with you. This is a top-shelf priority. This is a fellow elder, a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Peter says, I, I, saw, I saw what Christ did for us. And so this is what I'm urging you to. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. And that's the role. Shepherd the flock of God. Lead God's sheep. Feed God's sheep. Care for God's sheep. And I want to say this morning once again, that is by no means the role of one man who often has his name on the church sign. Ultimately, it's the role of every believer to take part in that work, and yet God has gifted certain men to take part in that in a very particular way. We'll be talking even more about that in the days ahead, but let me leave you with this this morning. So why grow? So Andrew, you've been talking about growth all morning. I'm still not convinced. Why should I be growing in Christ. Why is this nominal Christianity not enough? Let me give you three reasons. Actually, Paul gives them to you in verses 13 to 16. The goals, the goals of our growth are these. First of all, first goal, Christ-inspired unity. Again, again, don't hear me talking about a manufactured unity based on a false understanding of God or of His Word. I'm talking about a unity of the Spirit, a Holy Spirit-empowered unity. When Jesus prayed for us in John 17, do you know what the focus of His prayer for, for His future church was going to be? A church had yet to be inaugurated, had yet to be started. Do you know what Jesus prayed for us as a church? Father, may they be one as we are. May the very nature of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons yet one God, will never fully understand that it's a mystery. And yet he says, may they be one as we are one. May their unity also be a mystery. May the world look at them and say, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense to us why people from such a wide socioeconomic background would be able to worship together. How is it that both Democrats and Republicans can be singing the praises of this Jesus. In Paul's day, how in the world is it that Jews and Gentiles are coming together in the same churches, worshiping the same God? How is that possible? Because this is Christ-inspired unity. Because that which unites us is greater than that which divides us. In Philippians 2, Paul said, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, by the way, he's assuming these things are true. It's not an if like there maybe there's not. He's assuming that these things are true. If there's any encouragement in, in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, here's the command. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord and of one 
mind. See the unity there? Where does the unity come from? It comes from Christ Himself. Second reason to grow in Christ is Christ modeled maturity. Second goal of our growth is Christ modeled maturity. He is the one that we are aiming at. He is the model for our growth. People say, well, what, what does it mean to grow in Christ? It sounds like some ethereal thing you can't quite get your hands on. It's like you're trying to hold on to a handful of jello and it's slipping through your fingers. You just can't quite. What does it mean to grow in Christ? What's the goal here? To look like Jesus. To grow in humility, patience, gentleness, Kindness, self-control. Why? Because these are Christ-like attributes. What's the goal of the Christian life? To be a good person, right? No. The goal of the Christian life is to look like Jesus. As he says here, we will in all things grow up into Him who is the head, that being Christ. He is the goal. He is the model for our maturity. And growing up is not an option. Like newborn infants, Peter wrote, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. What happens to the baby that gets no milk? Certainly doesn't grow up. Now there is a place where we move on to the milk, to the meat and potatoes. We know that. We, Paul talks about that in, in, in 2 Corinthians. But we at least start with this milk, pure spiritual milk of the Word of God to help us to grow and to live out this Christian life. And finally this morning, the final goal, final reason for growth is Christ created Christianity. That's a mouthful, but I wrote it that way on purpose. Because here's what we've done. We have created this two-tiered system of Christianity in so many of our churches. You've got those who are growing and going for Christ, and you've got those who are not. You've got your active Christians and your nominal Christians. You've got those who are active in their faith, and you've got those who are merely spectators. And the Bible is saying to us this morning, let's flee from that kind of a mentality. And understand, yes, we are all in different places. We, some have been Christians for decades and have been growing in Christ and know this word better than any of the rest of us. And others are just beginning that journey. But we're not talking about a two-tiered Christianity where you can sign on for path A or path B. There is only one path. You may find yourself at different places along the path, but hear me this morning. There is only one path. Nominal Christianity is not Christianity. Spectator Christianity is not biblical and it will not save you. Just coming to church and hearing a message and, and walking away unchanged, this is not what Christ saved you for. Hear me pleading with you because I'm, the greatest fear that I have for our churches today is that there are people who are trusting in a lesser than version of the gospel, a weakened, watered down version of the gospel that says, get your ticket to heaven punched and then live however you want to for your life because you're good to go. We have taken this Baptist mantra of once saved, always saved and made it mean something it was never intended to mean. If you were rescued from your sin by the blood of Jesus Christ, you were meant for growth. Don't buy this two-tiered Christianity any longer. There is one path, and it is the path of joy, it is the path of life, and it is the path of growth. Jesus Himself said, and we're going to finish up here. He said, I will build my church. Not I might. If I get around to it, Jesus said, after Peter's great confession that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus looked at Peter and said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against. That's strong language, folks. If you don't feel the strong, this is, this is no weak pansy Jesus talking here. This is the commander of the army saying, I will build my church and the gates of hell will have nothing to say against it. There will be nothing that can stand in the way of my church. 
And yet when we see the church so often today, the, the manifest vision of the church that so many have is of a weak church that's doing nothing because so many of us are not operating within the giftedness that Christ died to give us. When he rose from the dead in victory over death and hell and the grave, he had gifts that he distributed according to the measure of his grace to every one of us that are meant to be used. And so I'm calling you away today. I'm pleading with you. I'm urging you. If you're not already in the fray, it's time to enter in. There is work that needs to be done. Not in any way, don't hear me in any way telling you there is work that needs to be done in order to earn your salvation or to make God happy. You will never work hard enough for that. That's why Jesus came. But as a result of Christ's finished work on the cross and your faith in Him, now, now, Ephesians 2.10, now you work for Christ out of the overflow of a heart that is in love with Him. A heart that would look at nominal Christianity and say, why would I want that when Jesus rescued me for something so much greater? The fact that we would even desire nominal Christianity means that we've not grasped the gospel in its fullness. He saved you for a radically changed and transformed life. He instilled in you, if you are His, He has instilled in you a gift that's to be used. By the way, that gift can look a lot of different ways. Saying, well, I can't get up on the platform and do what you're doing. Maybe not. But I would say this. Maybe your gift is meant to be used with preschoolers. Just as a side note, there's a, a great need in our preschool ministry right now. My son's age, 10 or 12, all, they're all boys right now. But somebody, I believe, in this room has a gift for working with preschoolers. If I got stuck in a room of 10 or 12 boys my, uh, my boy's age, I would probably kill one or two of them before it was over. But some of you in this room, while you would look at me and say, well, I can't do what you're doing, you could go in there and you could have a profound impact on the life of three and four-year-olds that I could never have. It's just one example of hundreds I could give you. But what I'm calling you to is activate your faith. Live out what Christ has put in you. Exercise your gift for the building up of His body, for the glory of His name. Jesus said, I will build my church. Will you be a part of that work? That's the call today. And so what happens if we do? So, okay, all right, preacher, I've heard the message, so what happens if I do? I want to show you what I think is a great picture. As we finish our time in the Word today, I want to share this video with you, a poem that was written about what happens when the people of God take seriously Ephesians chapter 4. When we run away from spectator Christianity and from this two-tiered mess that we've made and we follow after the faith once for all delivered to the saints, we run after Jesus with both barrels blazing, we do it all for the glory of God, I believe this is a great picture of what takes place. So you guys check this out and, and we'll close here. strength or resolve? Can we make it so? Can we shape the course of our lives according to our purpose and designs? Or add a single hour to the measure of our time? How can we ever venture into what is unknown when we are incapable of the smallest change on our own? Looking back over the span of our lives, we can see the marks that testify to how far we've come, how much we've grown. 
how much of his grace we have been shown. The marks of maturity on our lives. The evidence of the work of Christ. The seed that he has planted in our heart. The Lord has also watered and will refine every part. It is his intention to give it growth. Until it comes to fruition, he has sealed it with his hope. That he who began this good work in you will see it through. In this lies our hope, not in what we do. But we do not grow alone. Our roots are intertwined, one with another, so that your strength is mine. While we wait in expectation, no growth can be seen. The tender shoots that so quickly spring up must grow strong, lest they remain frail and green. Would we be overwhelmed by perils in store that his timing seeks to prepare us for? Let us endure our trials with patience, for it's in his goodness that we trust and hold fast to our commitment, resting in his faithfulness to us. His goal is for our good. On this our assurance falls, that he who began this good work will surely make it grow tall. So he gives us this promise. Paul writes, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The call this morning is the call to growth. You cannot receive that call, though, until you first receive the call to life. The Bible says, apart from Jesus, you are dead in your trespasses and sins, and there is absolutely nothing you can do about that. That's why Jesus came, to do for you what you could never have done for yourself, to be able to give to you a grace that could not be earned and definitely would not be deserved. And so it's a call to life, but if you have found life in Christ, it's a call away from this ridiculous idea we've created in our minds that there is a two-tiered Christianity. There's some who will grow and others who will just not. It's the call to growth today. And you may not know what that looks like in your life. That's where this gift of pastor teachers comes into the body to equip God's people for works of service. To show the pathway to growth. So maybe your response this morning will be, I'm ready, God. I've received the call. I want to grow in my relationship with Christ, but I don't know how. What we're saying to you is, let us help you. Not because we've got it all figured out. That's not the deal. You know, we're not creating two tiers here. It's not because we've all got it figured out, but it's, it's extending the arm and saying, let's grow together. Let's grow in Christ together. If you'd receive that call today, the call to life or the call to growth, we'd invite you to respond. It's ultimately the call to Jesus. Let's bow our heads for a moment and pray over this time. Father, as we hear you speaking today, Lord, may we hear you calling to us for some in this room. Perhaps it is the call to life for the first time hearing the gospel that Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, died on the cross in their place, in my place, in the place of sinners so that we could have eternal life in Him. The call to life in Christ has been issued, God. And if there would be one who would respond, we, we praise you for that, God. But I believe for many, it is the call to growth. To flee from this nominal Christianity, from this two-tiered approach to the Christian life, and to see that all of us have been called to grow in Christ and to be a part of growing His body. To exercise our gifts in service to Him and to one another. Yes, to love Your Word, God. 
Yes, to serve your people, God. Yes, to be stretched well beyond our comfort zones, God. Yes, to have a faith that is active and living, a faith that will not just hear the Word of God, but will act upon that which it hears. So call us to action today, Lord. We respond by faith, a faith that is alive and well and working for you, not to earn your favor, but because your favor has been freely given. So now we activate our faith in response. We do it for your glory and the good of your people. Lead us to respond, Lord, in Jesus' name. Those of you that are heading out on fall break this week, uh, please be safe. Uh, God bless you, and, and let's close in prayer today. We thank you, God. Thank you for calling us to life. We were those dead bones that you spoke your word over and called us to life, bone upon bone, covered in flesh, and breathed into us the breath, and we are a living as a result of what you have done. What you began at the cross and completed in your resurrection, you have done in us. But you've also, God, given us the call to growth. A call that will be unique in each follower of Jesus' life. And yet a call that is absolutely necessary. It's by this growth that we see the outworking of the faith we profess to have. I pray for those today, God, who have been strangled by the false teaching of nominal Christianity, Lord. I pray that you would rescue from that and that you would draw us to the one true and living faith, a faith that is not based upon works and yet as a result of Christ's work now works out our salvation with fear and trembling. Thank you for the gifts you've given. Now may we use them for your glory and the good of your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week.